If we haven't met, my name's Matthew. I'm the associate pastor here. We're very glad you're here this morning. Uh, really, really important part of, of Isaiah this morning. If you're going to pick out, you know, three of the most important bits, Isaiah 6 is there. Like it's glad you're here. Um, it's really important. How about I pray as we uh, engage with God's word together today? <coughs> Heavenly Father, we want to ask today that as we hear your word, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to understand that we, you would give us hearts that desire to obey you and lead us to respond to you in the right way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, uh, before we you know, really get into it this morning, I want you to have a think for a sec. Uh, if you only had one word to describe God, what God's like, what's your word? Think about it. One word. That's all you get. How about we even share a couple? Does anybody want to tell us what their word is? And there's lots of good answers, so don't feel shy. Just. Yep, that's a good answer. Sorry? Holy, that's an especially good answer today. <laughs> omnipotent, that's a technical theological word, which is wonderful. Yes, all-powerful, all omnipotent, without limits on his power. Yep. Mighty, Mighty yep, power again. Loving, common one. Awesome. Lots of good answers. Uh, I'm not going to have to stand up here and call any, any of you heretics at this point. Um, I probably wouldn't do it in that way. Anyway, um, one word you'd use to describe God. Um, in our culture, we've got lots of good responses uh, this morning, but I think uh, a lot of people reduce God kind of down to two concepts. Um, on the one hand, God is really good and loving, right? It's kind of like that's a big part of what God is like, and that's right. I mean, the Bible says God is love. Um, and it says God's righteous, he's, he's good, he always does the right thing, God's good and loving. On the other hand, people say God is all-powerful, so kind of this combination of love, goodness, and power is everything to do with God uh, for a lot of people in our culture. But the problem is a lot of people think that's, that's all there is to God. He's just loving, he's just powerful, and that gets you in all kinds of problems. It really misrepresents the God we meet as we read the Bible. Um, right in our face constantly as we read the Bible is this idea that God is holy. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, our instinct should be, what's God like? You've got one word. Holy should be right up there on the list. It really should, if we're going to reflect the, the emphasis of the Bible about what God's like. I mean, I'll put it this way. We just read um, part of the Bible where the angels, it seems, had three words to describe God. And instead of using three different words, they used the word holy three times to describe God. Holy, holy, holy is this God. And if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's favorite title for God is he's the Holy One of Israel. He keeps on saying the Holy One of Israel. And if you look at our series title uh, for reasons to do with what the book's about, we've called it the Unstoppable Plans of the Holy God. Holiness just keeps coming up. It's right in in our face as we read Isaiah about what God uh, is like. Um, We're going to get to talk about what holiness really means in a little while. First of all, I want to give you three reasons that I think it's really important we think of God as holy, and it's right in the front of our minds in how we conceive of God uh, together. Uh, First thing, uh, if we fail to think of God as holy, we domesticate God and make him really tame. Sure, God's good, loving, and he's powerful, but he's still really easy to ignore. He's kind of a really tame, powerful, happy grandpa in the sky type of figure. He doesn't confront us, he doesn't warn us about judgment, he doesn't command much, he just helps us live a good life and maybe gives cosmic hugs when we need them. If he's just love and power, that's, that's God. 
It's very easy to ignore this God. It's very easy to have this God on your own terms. Whereas the Bible says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Over and over again, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Today, I think people want to say, uh, well, God just wants to be your friend. (laughs) It, it, It doesn't have the same sort of perspective on what God's like, the scale of God, the seriousness about how we do engage with God. Look at this part from 1 Peter. There's lots of bits of the Bible like this. It says to Christians, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you, God, is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I'm holy. Since you call on God, uh, call on our Father, sorry, who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Can't just be God's my buddy in the sky. God is holy. And we can't domesticate God and turn him into a tame God. Second reason we need to think about God as holy is it changes how we defend the faith. For the last few hundred years especially, uh, one of the most uh, popular logical proofs people have used to disprove the existence of God uh, banks on the idea that we think of God basically just as all-loving or all-good and all-powerful. Uh, you probably heard it. It's very common and a lot of people find it very convincing. It goes something like this. Um, the idea is God is all-loving, And he's all-powerful. Now, both of those things are are, are true. They're absolutely true. And so the logic goes like this. Logically, such a God would want to stop evil and would be able to stop evil. He'd want to stop evil because he's good and he'd be able to do it because he's all-powerful. However, evil exists. And therefore, logically, a God who is all-good and all-powerful can't possibly exist, because if an all-powerful, all-loving God existed, he'd do away with evil. Do you see the argument? Have you heard this sort of thing before? Maybe not as formally as that, but it's, it's been one of the, the, the dominant disproofs of God for the last few hundred years, as we basically just thought of God as, well, he's all-loving and he's all-powerful. Of course, the God of the Bible can't just be summed up in two concepts, <laughs> love and power. He's holy. You add the premise, God is holy, to the mix of that argument, and just stuffs the whole thing around. Yep. God loves people and he wants to rescue them from evil and he's powerful enough to do it. But I tell you what, he's also holy. And because he's holy, among other things, that means he loves justice uh, He lo- loves justice and righteousness and he hates sin and evil and he will not tolerate those things in his presence. Which means that he wants to do away with evil and he wants to rescue evil people. And so he has to, the, the evil he has to do away with is actually part of us, who we are. You see how it, it just breaks it down. And so um, if, if God is holy and he's all-loving, suddenly we've got a God who wants to rescue us, but who is so pure that he can't just ignore sin. And now we're starting to talk about the God the Bible actually talks about, and not just some theoretical philosopher's God. The third reason we need to think about God as holy, I just want to quickly share with you, is it changes the gospel we tell other people. Um, on, I, um, it's funny, Stuart talking about, um, he's, he's going through Mark's gospel in this Jesus for the Curious thing. I think it's wonderful. Um, something I've done uh, probably about 10 years uh, is go on HSC study camps with high school students, um, and they're studying for the HSC, and it's a Christian camp, so in the morning I get to do a, a talk from Mark's gospel and present them with who Jesus is. Um, I do six talks, and I tell them, you guys are adults, or you're about to be adults, you're about to enter the real world, and Jesus is too important to just have kiddie thoughts about You need to have adults' thoughts about Jesus. You need to engage with him seriously and think about where you stand in relation to him. And and, and so we deal with some common objections to Christianity along the way. And we just present what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. And it's great. Um, Kids usually enjoy it. Uh, These young adults usually enjoy it. Um, 
even though they often find it confronting, some of it, because Jesus deserves to be taken seriously. Uh, last year, a couple of weeks after, my, uh, after the camp, I got a call from a parent. It was on my day off too, which was, you know, unpleasant. Um, it was a bit awkward to start with. Um, she said, oh, you did those talks in the camp, right? Yeah, yeah, I did the talks in the camp. Okay, you're going to do those talks in another camp? Oh, no, I just do one of these camps a year. Oh, that's good. Can you make sure you never do those talks again on a, on a camp to teenagers? Uh, is basically what she said. Now, this lady was a Christian. I talked to her a bit. She had a lot to say to me. She didn't have much listening space for me at the time, which, okay. Um, she was a Christian. She seemed very sincere in her faith, but she was very alarmed that I had talked about God's judgment so much that I talked about Jesus coming to save us from God's judgment. She said, what kids need to hear is really simple talks about how much God loves them. And that's it. You see how it changes the message we proclaim? If we're going to proclaim the God who is actually presented in the Bible? See, she wasn't concerned the talks went over their heads. She knew they understood just fine. And that's the problem. They knew they'd been confronted with a God that they needed to respond to. And so she urged me never to give those sorts of talks to teenagers again, which I think is the biggest mistake you can make. I mean, they're about to go to university. They need to think adult thoughts about Jesus. Uh, The holiness of God makes a big difference to how we speak about God. If we're going to have convictions about we're going to believe the God of the Bible, we need to engage with it. So probably the introduction to uh, the concept of holiness in the Bible is where God's people meet him at Mount Sinai and kind of become his people for the first time. God says, I'm going to meet you. My presence is going to come to you on Mount Sinai. They say, okay, that sounds like a party. They turn up at Mount Sinai. They gather around the thing, and God's presence basically explodes onto this mountainside. There's fire and lightning. There's smoke. The people of Israel are terrified, and they are warned, this God is holy, and therefore he is very, very dangerous. He's absolutely ferocious against sin. So there's limits put around the mountain so that people can't approach God. And, and, and you get this in chapter 19. And God, Lord said to Moses... Go down and warn the people so they don't force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. This is a ferocious God. Later, God tells Moses, very simply, no one may see me and live. No one can see God and live because that's the effect of God's holiness when sinful people enter his presence. No one will see God and live. And so Moses did not see God. Turn to chapter uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah, though, and verse 1 should give you goosebumps on goosebumps. Here's what chapter 6, verse 1 says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. No one may see me and live, is what God told Moses, and it's true. What we're about to read is one of the really unique parts of the Bible, because nobody else has a vision quite like this. Um, It's a vision, it's an experience that Isaiah would never forget, and it would shape the rest of his life and ministry and the rest of the book of Isaiah as well. Now, let me tell you a bit about the setting of what's going on here. Um, Isaiah is remembering when it was. It was the year 740. That's the year King Uzziah Uzziah died, king of Judah. Isaiah has this vision of God. Now, the setting of the vision is the temple in Jerusalem. I don't know if he was actually at the temple in Jerusalem, but in his vision, like God gave him vision, uh, that's, that's where he's located. Now, you, you, you need to picture the temple of Jerusalem a bit. It's easy when you've got a picture. Um, it looks something like that, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. It's an artist impression based on the descriptions we have in the Bible. 
Um, it's, the, the temple's basically the link between heaven and earth. It's a model of how we approach God in heaven. Heaven is God's throne room. The temple is kind of like a model of that on earth. And so people can go to the temple and go to where God's kind of come to dwell among his people. God is the king among his people. And so this heavenly throne room has this thing in the middle, it's real small, called the Ark of the Covenant, which is symbolically the throne in the middle of the thing. And there's angels, everywhere there's big angels here, there's angels on, these, on the walls and decorations and that sort of thing. Um, the place is usually full of smoke because of all these, curtain, uh, these, these candles and that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a big altar nearby. Uh, so there's all smoke coming from that as well. So that's kind of where he's located in his vision. However, remember, it's a model of heaven. And in Isaiah's vision, the temple kind of morphs into what it represents. He finds himself not standing in a building the human beings made. He finds himself standing in God's presence in heaven. The Ark of the Covenant's morphed into an actual throne, exalted over all the creation. There's still an altar nearby, and the place is full of more smoke than the real one was, the one on earth was. And now those angels are living, terrifying angels. The word used for the angels in, in verse um, 2, above him was seraphim. Seraphim is a particularly, particular kind of angel. The name means uh, fiery one. Um, they appear to be, we don't know much about them, they appear to be human-like. They, it says they have faces, they have hands, they have feet, and they speak. But they also have six wings, um, and, and they're made of fire, or they look like they're made of fire, or something like that. Um, but they're just intimidatingly powerful. Do you notice in, in verse 4, it says... Um, when they spoke, the whole structure of the temple shook like an earthquake. These, these angel figures, just absolutely terrifying, these things. Uh, and uh, the shocking thing, though, Isaiah barely notices them. They're just the attendants of the one who sits on the throne. And the one who sits on the throne so glorious that even those fiery seraphim are using two sets of their wings to shield themselves from the glorious presence of the one who sits on the throne. And they're calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, I, I want us to think real careful about today, today about what holiness means. And I want to spend a little bit of time on it because it's a, a little bit of a difficult concept. Um, it's uh, the, the, the holy, 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 the th- repeating it three times seems to be a, a made-up sort of phrase that the angels used. It seems, it's like when the word most isn't, isn't enough. Like you say most, and that's the biggest you can get, and so you say mostest. You, do you know what I mean? And so they go, holy, oh, holy, holy, holy. Is like, it, it's, it's like he's the holiest, holy, holy, the holiest, holy, holy, holy is the point. There's nothing compar- to compare God to in terms of holiness. Okay, what's holy mean? Well, I reckon if you look up a Bible dictionary or commentary on this, I think you'll have an extremely frustrating experience. Um, You'll have an frustrating experience because nobody seems to have a real neat, tight little definition on what holiness means. Uh, Or they use words that you don't understand. Um, The reason is holiness has lots of aspects to it. Right at the centre of it is this idea that uh, separate, distinct, is what holiness is about. This, This utterly different but that doesn't quite capture it, does it? Because the angels aren't just circling around God going, really separate is God. Like, it, it, it's more intense than that. It's bigger. Distinct, distinct, distinct. Is, it doesn't capture what's going on. There's an element of that. But it's the kind of difference that's really confronting and that smacks you in the face. It's that kind of difference is what holiness is about. 
Luke and Bernie aren't here, here today, unfortunately, um, but they told me a story that I think illustrates this difference aspect of holiness uh, in an ironic way. Um, Luke, who plays bass up here sometimes, and piano as well, um, he did a PhD at Cambridge University, um, and so they went to church at Holy Trinity in Cambridge. Um, during part of the service there, the congregation says the line, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So the congregation started saying it, and they said it with the congregation, and Bernie and Luke just both stopped saying it and looked at each other mid-sentence in utter shock and disbelief. They could not believe how westy they sounded in comparison to everybody else. Because nobody says the word holy properly like a Cambridge accent. And the room is saying holy like the good Lord intended in Queen's English and all the rest of it, and they're just going, when did we become such bogans? Far out. Like, you, you enter the room... And these people are speaking English in Queen's accents. And suddenly we sound embarrassing in comparison. They're just struck. It smacked them in the face. We're so different to these people. Our voices are just, you know, this pure Queen's English and this dirty Western suburbs Australian kind of vibe. That's the sort of thing we're talking about with holiness. It smacks you in the face. I'm going to go through five ideas here that are part and parcel about what it means for God to be holy. Um, the different uh, thing has different aspects to it. I... Sweet. Um, holiness basically at its centre is God's godness to make up another word you might say he's transcendence God's beyond time and space he isn't limited in size or power and location he's just beyond all all time and space completely he isn't part of creation Uh, it's pretty pretty hard to express this Uh, like I say God exists on a different uh, level, a different plane of existence than we do, okay? And you go, oh, that sounds very Doctor Who, that's very, you know, it's, it's, it's abstract, it's difficult. And so we need to think of the right analogy here. God's beyond creation. Um, something we might say to kids is, what's, what's God like to us? So we are to God what ants are to us, or something like that, right? You might say that to kids, and it's a good, it's, it's a good analogy for kids. It shows, wow, God's really big, and they think, they, they think of big thoughts, and, and, and they're trying to think, wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. We're talking adults, though, and I've got to say, it doesn't work. That isn't the comparison at all, because it's just a difference in size. You get enough ants, they can overpower me. We're part of the same system. We're made of the same stuff. God isn't just a bigger size. He transcends time and space and size completely. Let me give you an illustration that I think works. Maybe it doesn't. What is it like how God relates to me? Try your imagination on this one. The comparison is more like if I'm God, then the people I created are people in a novel that I wrote. If I was really clever, imagine that I could write people in my novel who consist entirely of words, but they're real people, so they can relate to each other. Try and imagine them trying to imagine me. They consist entirely of words. You say, I exist as a physical being. They have no concept of physical being. They live in words land. They can't comprehend the concept of physical dimensions. They try to explain their creator in something like this. Well, the author of the book, the author of the book, the creator, he's really big word. He's a big, big word. All in capitals. Not in comic sans, in some good font. Size 500 font. That's what the creator's like. And you just go, you word people haven't begun to understand what it's like to live outside the book in physical land, in a different level of existence, a different plane of existence. Because I transcend your book land, your word land, I live out here in the physical world. God's transcendent, beyond our form of existence entirely, as we try to explain how big God is. It's like those word people trying to say, well, you know, the the author of the book's like a a word that's really, really big. (laughs) See, it it doesn't work. Completely outside, far far beyond 
uh, what we can imagine. Right out of that, the second concept always associated with God's holiness is his power. It's pretty obvious that Isaiah sensed God's power in his vision. Israel sensed it too when they came near at Mount Sinai. God is not tame, God is dangerous. He is powerful. He's not just powerful, he's gloriously powerful. So when God's presence comes near to people in the Bible, they sense glory, majesty, power, sovereignty, might, those sorts of things. Another thing associated with God's uh, holiness is his righteousness. And this comes out all the time. God's being holy means that he loves good to the core and he hates evil to the core. That's part of what his holiness is about. In fact, God's righteous actions prove his holiness, is what he says. If you just look in Isaiah 5 there, a bit that Stuart did last week, um, verse 16, it connects these two ideas. It says, um, The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Do you you see how the connection there? Holiness expresses itself in loving good and hating evil and doing the right thing. That's what it means for God to be holy. And because God's people are called to be holy and imitate him, they're supposed to live by the same standards. But as Stuart went through last week, they utterly failed at that. He turned to chapter 5, verse 7, uh, the page before that. It says about the nation of Israel that God looked for justice and saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but instead he heard cries of distress. Isaiah's been warning Israel for quite a while now at this point that for them to be God's people means they need to reject unrighteousness, they live, need to live justly, they need to live rightly, or they're going to invite God's judgment, and he is a dangerous God. God's holiness means that he's righteous, he loves good, he hates evil. Another concept there related to it, it's an unfortunate noise at the back there. <laughs> Another concept related to God's holiness... And it's, it's kind of the same point again from a different camera angle and it's really important to get this though. God's righteousness uh, is his purity. He's spiritually clean is a way the Bible talks about it over and over again. Now this is a way of God talking about his holiness that we're supposed to be able to relate to. What it's saying is um, he's really pure which means he hates grotesque sin. It's icky, it's gross, it's like foul sewerage. It is utterly detestable. And do you know what he's talking about if I give you some examples? The example I give with teenagers, which I'm going to give to you, so brace yourself, it's a teenager illustration. Consider you've got a glass of milk, it's a wonderful, pure thing. You're going to drink the milk. I like milk. Uh, you're going to drink the milk if it's got poo in it. Seriously, you're going to drink the milk if it's got poo in it, if it's got impurity in it. Now, you aren't going to ask me how much impurity, how much poo it has in it. It could be pellet poo, it could be a great steaming log with its own ecosystem. You are not touching that glass of milk, I guarantee you. And the point is, and the reason I'm being so horribly graphic about it, is we're supposed to gag. God gags at sin. He's pure. He's too pure to be in the presence of sin. You're supposed to gag at sin. It's gross. It's awful. And that poo milk needs to be taken out of my presence immediately. Get me some clean stuff. The last thing i say it's associated with God's holiness. You see how complex a concept it is. It ties all these things together. It's related to life. Maybe it sounds a bit uh, surprising at this point. Holiness means that life radiates from God's presence just as much as it means he judges sin because he's righteous. Life radiates from him. He's the source of life and goodness and every blessing. A leprous man once came up to Jesus and talked about him. He, 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 was, he had leprosy. It was horrible, a horrible disease. And he doesn't seem to talk about leprosy, though. He says, hey, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus said, well, I am willing, be clean. And he healed the man of his leprosy. It sounds like he's talking about his holiness before God. But part of holiness is wholeness, being entire, being whole, being, having life. And so he wanted to be clean. He wanted to be made well. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter, Peter is preaching about Jesus. Jesus who died on the cross. He's preaching to these people who are just hearing about him for the first time. And he says, this Jesus died, but you know what? God would not let his Holy One see decay. The logic is, Jesus is holy, utterly right, and therefore God gave him the only thing that was right for him to receive, eternal life. Because holiness has to do with life. Now that's a picture of what holiness is about. It's about uh, God's godness outside time and space, awesome power, his righteousness and purity, and him being the source of life. Give us a big problem though, because you come into God's presence as someone unrighteous because you want life. And you don't receive life, you receive judgment. See, there's, there's kind of a conundrum here. On the one hand, apart from God, we're in death, away from life, come close to God and we're judged for our sin and our unrighteousness because God won't tolerate sinful people in his presence. Now, come back to the passage. I'm going to slow it down still. As we, it says, uh, I saw the Lord is what Isaiah says. Before we keep going, I just want us to think about that for a moment. What did Isaiah actually see? We've just heard that God's transcendent, that people can't see him. He's outside time and space. He isn't part of creation. And so the Bible says that, actually. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 16, it says, God alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. It says, oh, I saw him, okay. Um, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in the closest possible relationship with the Father, has made him known. It says, in, in John's Gospel, it says, no one has ever seen God. What did Isaiah see? It says, he saw the Lord. What we're talking about, Isaiah isn't lying, is God gave him a vision, a real experience about what it means to be in his presence. God's kind of accommodating himself to our level. He's presenting himself in a vision to Isaiah. Even that, though, it's, it's, it, you've got to keep qualifying it still. I saw the Lord. Okay, Isaiah, you saw the Lord. Describe him to me. Well, there was a throne lifted up over everything, and this robe, it was a massive robe. It filled the whole temple. That's it. That's all he says. Okay, um, so your description doesn't extend any higher than the robe. Maybe that's because he's covering his face like those angels. Can't bear to look at the glory of what is in front of him. So you might ask, well, Isaiah, did you get a clear look? Were there any other obstacles in the way? Well, the robe filled the temple, so that was pretty big. And the temple was full of smoke, so it was pretty hazy. And the throne was surrounded by fiery angels. And so automatically saying, I saw the Lord. But it's a really reduced idea of seeing God. He's still, there's, there's a fair bit of distance here. And so it's, 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 it's kind of... He's being separated from God somewhat. He's being protected from God somewhat. And so he's having a vision of seeing God, but even in this kind of reduced, qualified sense, it's absolutely devastating. Have a look at verse 5. His response to seeing God in this vision, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah is immediately aware of the holiness difference between him and God. His despair isn't that God's big and he's small. Not really. His despair is that in God's unshielded presence, he becomes profoundly aware of how unclean and unrighteous he is. He does not belong here. The difference that smacks him in the face isn't that these people talk with nice Cambridge accents and I sound like a Westie. He's noticing that his mouth is spiritually putrid. 
it's a scene of spiritual purity. There's angels using their mouths, their holy mouths, to praise God. And all he can notice is his mouth reeks before God. Reeks before God. Now, I think if somebody was to retell this story, kind of make up a similar story today, they would have one of the seraphim come down at this point and say, Isaiah, you're getting too worked up, mate. God loves you just the way you are. But that would be utterly blasphemous because God's holy. Isaiah is sinful and he does deserve God's judgment. It's worth recognizing, though, Isaiah is one of the good guys. He spent five chapters telling Israel how bad they are. Not in a way like, I'm awesome, I'm perfect, but Israel was really corrupt. They were immoral, unrighteous, unjust, and he's saying, you need to follow God, you need to take God seriously like I'm trying to. But out in the world, he's the holy man calling unholy people to repentance. He enters God's presence and suddenly he's just another one of the unholy people who desperately needs to be cleansed. I want you to take note of this, friends. You you can spend your entire life hanging out with other people and thinking you're okay because most other people are worse than you. You really can. I wonder if Isaiah kind of had that experience, not in a bad way. He, he tried to live righteously, as he should. But you enter into God's presence, and you're no longer the holy person over here with all these awful people over here. You're part of the unholy people. You're one of the people that needs to be cleansed. Left to yourself, you find yourself exposed to God's ferocious holy presence like Isaiah did. But praise God, there's a solution. Have a look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the way salvation works in the entire Bible. Does cowering poor little Isaiah in the corner going, I'm done for, God's about to destroy me, does he fix the sin problem? The solution always comes from God's side of the line, not ours. The angel comes from God with a coal and cleanses Isaiah of his sin. It's entirely God's work. It's really about the time much later where God's son came to earth, dying across for our sins, to be the sacrifice on the altar that would cleanse people to make them fit for God's presence. This has cleansed your lips. He's no longer worried. Your guilt's taken away. There's no guilt. Your sin's atoned for. You're clean, you're pure, you're righteous in God's sight. It's an absolute miracle in light of God's holiness, isn't it? When you get a vision of what God is like, his cleanliness, his holiness, that is a a miracle that God can make people right to live in his presence. That's what Isaiah experienced. He's utterly transformed. Look what happens next, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. A second ago, you can't have imagined him saying that. He's in this awesome, terrifying scene, aware of his own sinfulness. A moment later, he's forgiven, and God's looking for volunteers for the mission to Israel. And he says, he puts up his hand. Yes, send me. I can do this job for you, God. Extraordinary. Incidentally, the key to wanting to share the good news about Jesus with others isn't just trying harder. (laughs) It's knowing how forgiven you are knowing how cleansed you are. That's what Isaiah experienced. That's what we need to experience more if we want to share the good news of Jesus more. We need to know better the cleansing he's offered in Jesus if we want to share the good news of Jesus with other people. Now, chapter 6, 9 to 13. I could end the sermon there. In fact, one of my commentaries said, almost all sermons on Isaiah 6 conclude with verse 8, probably because of the frankly disturbing character of the remainder of the chapter. 
I'm going to do the remainder of the chapter very quickly because I think it's tremendously important, as did the Lord Jesus. He quoted it. Uh, The New Testament quotes the rest of the chapter lots of times because it's really important. Uh, It's going to raise questions for you because I'm doing it quick and because it raises questions, but that's okay. We need to be confronted with God as He is and as He presents Himself. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Isaiah's going on this mission. What's God say to him? God says, Go and tell these people, these Israelites, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people calloused. Make their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah had, Israel had been rejecting God for quite a while, and so God is sending them a prophet to talk to them about it. But Isaiah is told that the effect of his preaching to the nation of Israel will only make them reject God all the more. That's what the effect is going to be. It might sound like Isaiah is supposed to speak obscurely, like in riddles and stuff. It's like he gets up and says, today's sermon, similar to last week, Israel, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, hear the word of the Lord, amen, bye. Um, and, and they go, what on earth is that about? It wasn't like that at all. It's a description of the effect that speaking clearly about God would have on this generation of Israel. And you read the rest of the book, there's a lot of really clear calls to Israel. You need to turn to God, you need to repent, you need to trust Him, you need to find forgiveness. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing and never perceiving. It's a description of how Israel had responded to God so far. It's also a description of what God's judgment on Israel would be for from here. Israel had rejected God and not listened to his voice. God's judgment on them, the punishment for that, he will ensure that they will go on not listening to him and they will not hear his voice. That's what it's saying. And that's what happened. It wasn't they didn't understand what Isaiah said. They understood just fine. They just didn't care. This is Isaiah chapter 30. They talk about the Israelites. They say to the prophets, give us no more visions of what's right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave us this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. God's sentence on Israel rejecting him was that they would go on rejecting him and that's what most of them did. Now Isaiah is obviously a bit upset about that. As you, as you should be. If you look at chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Then I said, For how long, Lord? How long is this going to happen? And God answered, Until the cities lay ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. How long is this going to keep going? Israel will keep disobeying God until they go into exile and punishment for disobeying God. This is going to be a let up until then. That sounds like really bad news. We'll get to how that applies in a moment. It is bad news. But verse 13 actually points to hope. There's actually a small remnant of Israelites who do listen. And though they'll go into exile, there will be people who will listen to Isaiah's words, who will trust God and find salvation. And there's this wonderful little phrase right at the end. There's going to be, it's like if Israel's a tree, it's going to get chopped down, but there's going to be a stump left in the land. And wait until you see what grows out of that stump in chapter 11. Um, we'll, we'll, We'll leave that for a few weeks' time. Now, Isaiah's mission sounds like it's got nothing to do with talking about Jesus today. I want to talk to people about Jesus today, and I want them to understand. It actually has everything to do with talking to people about Jesus today. 
See, Jesus taught in parables. Parables are stories with hidden meanings. He told that parable that that Peter read from Mark 4 a a, a little while ago. Um, It's a parable about how seeds being thrown all about, it lands on different soils, and the soils are different people who respond in different ways depending on the soil. So there's hard soil and the the seed does nothing on that. It just doesn't produce anything. But there's some soil that's good soil and it produces a crop and that's the one that, that has salvation. The important bits for that, that part of the Bible, though, are the bits you, you, you ignore as you read the passage, usually. Jesus starts his um, story by saying, listen. He ends his story saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That isn't just poetry. Jesus is saying, you know in Isaiah's day, if people refused to listen to God, make sure you are not people like that. You've got ears to hear, make sure you hear. See, what's been happening is Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God, doing miracles and giving people the opportunity to have salvation, but some people oppose him. And so he started talking to them in parables that aren't all that easy to understand. And so the disciples at the end of the parable of the soils come up to him and, where's my, uh, oh gosh, this is an old version, that's terrible. Um, They come up to him, and I'm hoping that this bit of, oh, wonderful. Mark chapter 4, verse 10. When, um, and they come up to him, and this is what happens. Um, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God's been given to you, those who have come to Jesus to hear about it. But to those on the outside, everything's said in parables so that, and he quotes Isaiah 6, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And you think, surely God wants everybody to be forgiven. Yes, from a certain perspective, yes, definitely. But there's an important point here that's true of Isaiah's day, true of Jesus' day, and true of our day, and it's this. There are always a limited number of opportunities anyone has to respond to Jesus and have a fresh start with God. There's always a limited number. Everybody dies. At that point, you've got no more choice. Other times, people hear the gospel over and over and over again, and they refuse to listen And God's response is to lock people into their hard-hearted rejection of him and say, you are not going to get another chance. That might shock you, but the reason is because God's holy. We can't treat him like he's at our leisure. We can't treat him like he's that hobby we never took up. But one day I'll get to it. I'll get to Jesus one day. He commands everywhere to repent, turn to him and find forgiveness. He's not a tame God. He won't tolerate being put off forever. So incidentally, if you're a person who... (laughs) doesn't trust Jesus yet, and isn't really seeking anymore, there's a way of asking questions in a way that's genuine. Like going to Stuart's course is a wonderful way of doing that. Genuinely seeking to understand, to come inside, to come close to Jesus, ask you questions, and find out what he offers and to believe it. That's a wonderful path to walk on. There's a difference between that and hearing it over and over again, and your eyes beginning to glaze over all the more as you keep hearing it, and you run out of opportunities for your heart to respond. That's what Jesus is talking about. So if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, and you know you have the opportunity today, why don't you do that today? Because you don't know how many other opportunities you're going to have. If you are a Christian, here's something I want you to take to heart, and I think it's incredibly important, uh, and it will help us as we do evangelism, we tell people about Jesus. Here's the truth. The same gospel of Jesus that brings sinners to repentance and faith also hardens others against God. When we tell people about Jesus and they respond with faith, it brings salvation. When we tell people about Jesus, sometimes God uses that not to bring salvation, though. Sometimes he chooses to use that to bring judgment on them. This is a God who is holy, 
who is terrifying, who isn't tame. We need to understand as we speak clearly about Jesus, uh, some people are going to turn away. I've preached sermons where people have walked out, people have left. It's a horrible experience. They quite decisively walk away from the gospel. Uh, And I just need to know that God is at work in the background to call people to himself and to harden people to himself. He's holy, he's in charge. And it's not my fault what people's response is if I've spoken clearly about Jesus. And so I need to keep speaking clearly about Jesus. That phone call I had from that woman at camp, I had a lot more sympathy for her when she told me an aspect of the story came out. Her daughter is a Christian. The reason she was so upset about the camp wasn't really what I said. The reason was she brought two friends with her. And those two friends had fairly decisively decided they did not want to be Christians as a result of my talks and what was talked about. They weren't Christians yet, but now they were hard to it. Now they were sarcastic against it. And this 17-year-old girl obviously was very upset, and rightly so. But this is the work of the gospel, not just bringing salvation, but also hardening people to God sometimes. And God's holy. We can't water down a message because of it. We present people with the real God and ask him to have mercy on people, knowing that sometimes people will be hardened by it. Now, I just want to finish by saying, you find that alarming, you find that uncomfortable, so do I. I really do. I didn't know how to finish this sermon. I've been trying. Here's what I wrote down as I just sat down there before. Alarmed, uncomfortable. Perhaps that's because we've been engaging with the holy God and not just a tame God. I think that's the point. You got questions about that? Good, let's talk about it. But we have a God who is holy and shows mercy to us. So let's, um, let's give him thanks for that and um, pray that he would be merciful to those we know. Um, loving Heavenly Father, we, um, we want to acknowledge that you are far more holy, far more transcendent, powerful, righteous, pure, that you give so much more life. You're just far beyond what we can imagine or dream. And we want to acknowledge that we constantly... Um, think of you as far too small, far too limited, and far too tame. Father, we want to acknowledge that uh, you are a God who needs to be taken seriously. Um, Please help us to present you as you are, as we talk to each other, and as we think about you, and as we present others with the opportunity to turn to Jesus. Um, We want to ask, Father, we know that you're sovereign, you're in control, and you're in control of the effects that your gospel will have on people as they hear it. So, We want to ask that as we speak to our friends clearly about Jesus, that you would not harden their hearts, but would soften their hearts and would cause them to trust in your son. And to those of us who may be thinking about Jesus and working out if we should respond, please help us to step over the line and and, and work these things through and respond rightly. Please give us eyes to see, ears to understand, hearts that desire to obey, obey you and lead us to live and respond to you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.